and welcome to the Sunday Show podcast. I'm Raji Sohal. What is going on with gas prices here in BC, global oil needs, and the Russia-Ukraine war? Researchers now understand the loss of smell from COVID-19 a lot more than they did before. What's the latest on what scientists have learned? And the BC Minister for Housing, David Eby, on how the province is moving from crisis management to long-term solutions when it comes to handling homelessness. Metro Vancouver currently has the highest gas prices in North America. We are paying over $2 a litre. It's almost impossible to fill up your tank right now and not uh, curse under your breath at just how expensive it is. And it could go higher. But what does Russia have to do with it? Adam Pankratz was the Liberal candidate for Burnaby South in the 2015 federal election. He lectures at UBC Sauter School of Business, and he joins us on the line. Good morning, Adam. Hi, Raji. Nice to be with you. Thank you so much for taking the time this Sunday. Adam, what is your understanding of how we got to the point where we're paying so much at the pump with regards to Russia's war in Ukraine? Well, there's two things that are going on with regards to the oil prices. Um, The first is a longer term thing of you know, what have we done in the past that there just isn't enough oil, like worldwide, uh, and there wasn't enough, and prices were rising prior to the war. And that's a result of structural underinvestment um, in the industry, generally speaking, uh, for, for a number of reasons. But prices were already on the rise. And then, of course, you got, uh, you got 10%, essentially, of the uh, world supply of oil taken off the market or potentially taken off the market uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine. And while the sanctions have not yet specifically targeted Russian oil and gas, they've actually been specific to avoid targeting it, um, people are self-sanctioning, right? Banks are uh, and traders don't want to risk uh, getting a bad name. We saw that happen with Shell, who recently bought um, some Russian oil at a discount, um, and there was a, a quite an uproar about it, even though they were within the letter of the law of the sanctions. But um, you know, people are are not taking the Russian product right now, and that has caused the, the unbelievable spike that we saw uh, last week. Who is tiptoeing around oil sanctions? Well, pretty much everybody. I mean, uh, nobody wants to risk running afoul of U.S. or European Union sanctions and um, and and risk getting on the wrong side of the government. So so there's there, again, the, the governments have been very um, conscientious to specifically carve out oil and gas from the sanctions on Russia because they they are aware of how important Russia supply is to the world. But traders and banks, they don't want to risk any chance that they get accused of trading with a sanctioned country. So so Russian oil is, you know, kind of sitting now waiting to be sold and, and can't move, even though theoretically it could. Do you know what that Shell uh, purchase meant? Well, the reason Shell did it, and this just demonstrates the, the difficulty or the tightness of the oil market, is they didn't have other options to get the oil to their refineries in time. That's what they said in a statement yesterday. Um, and so they purchased this, not because they really wanted to do business with Russia, but because otherwise their refineries 
and their clients down the road, um, whoever that may have been, I mean, we don't know who the clients were, but uh, would not have had oil, right? That's how tight the market is. So, and then Shell, you know, they said they're donating the profits to, to, to Ukraine. Um, but it was just a pure matter of they needed oil from somewhere and the only place they could get it which would get to their refineries and then their clients in time to not have supply disruptions was to buy it from Russia. That's how tight the market is right now. Okay. And globally, who is most reliant on Russia's oil? Um, well, the European Union. Uh, the, the European Union uh, writ large. I mean, Germany um, <clears throat> imports um, 55% of its gas from oil, uh, for sorry, from Russia, uh, 30, 45% of its ga- uh, oil. Uh, Finland is, you know, 99% Russian gas. Um, and that is the reason. I mean, this, this is the whole reason of what this has really noted to us about how important energy sovereignty is, that, um, that uh, the European Union, you know, can't sort of pull uh, the ultimate sanction at the moment uh, which is to stop the import of Russia's oil and gas and really put enormous pressure on on Mr. Putin um, because the European Union, you know, would would go dark uh, pretty much, right? Uh, they, 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 they are fully reliant on Russia for that, and, um, and that's causing huge geopolitical implications at the moment. Yeah, Adam, if, if uh, Europe, European countries cannot pull the oil card when it comes to sanctions... How significant, I mean, how much do we have then that we can even play with against Putin? Well, that's, that's why it's hard to know. Um, and I think that is, without any doubt, the, the calculation that uh, Mr. Putin made. Um, you know, where else can the oil come from in the world market? Uh, to get to Europe, I mean, it's tough, right? Because you need either a pipeline or a tanker. So, that that's that's a whole other logistical issue but um but just oil on the world market where else can it come from well you saw a u.s delegation of high-level officials go to venezuela right uh, a few yeah. days ago so are we going to see sanctions from venezuela lifted could very well be or could be I don't know, very well but could be um iran's oil is going to come back on the market but again uh, that will take time and even with iran and venezuela coming back on the market, um, the oil market will still be very tight, and prices are still likely to remain high. But you know, you you could put a, a lot more pressure on Russia if, uh, especially Venezuelan oil, came back on. And then here in BC, people are grappling with the extremely high uh, price of gas. And do we need to anticipate that that gas price is going to keep climbing? I would think so. Um, you know. The, the easiest way to think about it, these numbers aren't exact, but the easiest way to think about it is a $1 U.S. increase in, um, in like WTI crude will reflect as a one cent increase in the price of oil in Canada. Uh, it's approximate numbers. So, um, you know, could oil go up another 10 or 15 or $20 a barrel at the moment? That seems pretty likely uh, and pretty easy to happen. Uh, we don't know for sure, but certainly could. Um, and could go higher than that. So, you know, could you see a 10, 20, 30 cent increase at the pump because the price of oil has gone up? I would say that uh, that consumers should at least be prepared for that uh, in terms of in terms of looking to the future. Okay, very interesting stuff. Thanks for being with us this morning, Adam. My pleasure. 
Well, as protectionary measures from COVID-19 spread are being lifted in the province, some people are still suffering through the loss of smell from having caught the virus. It can make things that normally smell one way smell entirely differently, or you can lose your sense of smell altogether. But researchers are learning new things about that loss of smell. And joining us is Professor of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Sandeep Robert Dutta. Hello, doctor. Hello, how are you? Great. Thanks for joining us uh, at this hour. Before we get into the latest findings, how common is smell loss from the virus? Uh, It's very common. You know, the data are still coming in, but uh, depending on the study you read, at least 80% of people who get infected with the virus uh, end up with some change in their sense of smell. And often it, 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 it can actually be much higher than that. Some people actually estimate it could be everyone to some degree or another. Okay, what does the newest research on smell loss from COVID-19 show us? Uh, well, it, it, it teaches us that um, the virus is really unusual. You know, um, I'm, I'm sure you've had the common cold before and you've had some smell loss when you were recovering from the cold because you have all this inflammation in your nose. Uh, and what SARS-CoV-2 does is really unprecedented, right? It basically... Um, at least temporarily denies everyone their sense of smell um, to a different ex- to a different extent uh, for days or weeks, and even in some patients for months to years. Uh, and honestly, we've never seen a, a virus that behaves like this. Um, and so, uh, for those of us who are interested in the sense of smell, it's been a real surprise and a real challenge. And why is that important? I've read that there's this debate about whether the virus infects the nerve cells that detect odors, but it's not the case, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, the way your nose detects smell is, is there's a little bit of tissue in the back of the nose called the olfactory epithelium. And this tissue has, is made up of a bunch of different cell types. It's made up of neurons that are just like the neurons in your brain. Uh, and these neurons actually have specialized detectors that detect odors. Excuse me. And uh, next to these uh, neurons are support cells that kind of uh, uh, help to enable the function of those sensory neurons. Uh, And so when we were first investigating what the virus does, you know, I think the natural hypothesis is that the virus is getting into your nose, infecting and damaging the neurons, and that's how you lose your sense of smell. But uh, evidence um, from my research group and from many others now uh, in animals and in people suggests that the virus almost certainly targets the support cells that surround the sensory neurons. And and, and that means that... um, Essentially, there's an indirect mechanism through which the virus is causing people to lose their sense of smell. Okay, but it has to do with some kind of inflammation in the nose, is that right? Yeah, I think that's the thinking. The thinking is is that the support cells get infected, and that causes lots of local inflammation, and that indirectly affects the neurons in your nose. And it's, it's also true that I'm sure you've heard that you know people who get COVID get brain fog, Right. Uh, and there's been other kinds of neurological symptoms associated with COVID. I think much of the thinking around that is also indirect, that maybe the virus infects like the vasculature in your brain, but not, not the neural circuits themselves. Uh-huh, but, the okay. inflammation, but the inflammation that it causes can really affect neurons and neural circuits. Um, and so I think an emerging view that's supported by much of the data, although we still have a lot to learn, is that the virus might be attacking the nervous system in this kind of indirect way. Okay, yeah, there are countless stories in the news about these uh, long-haul COVID patients. Uh, But anecdotally, I also know of several people that got uh, SARS-CoV-2 when they were young, healthy, fit, who who still experience brain fog and forgetfulness, uh, tiredness after getting the virus. And 
And that loss of smell, you're saying, might have to do with those other symptoms that linger, like brain fog? Well, I think that uh, rather than them being directly related, I think it reflects a kind of common mechanism potentially that the virus uses to influence neurons in general. So like in the nose, they infect the support cells, and that causes dysfunction of the adjacent sensory neurons. Maybe in the brain, it infects the blood vessels, and that affects the function of the adjacent circuits in your brain. And so I think, I think, what we're, I think mostly we're thinking about um, what's happening in the nose as an example of what might be happening in the nervous system more broadly, rather than what's happening in the nose causing what's happening in your brain. Okay. For most people who experienced mild symptoms, what kind of uh, print did having the virus leave on them? Oh, that's such an interesting question. You know, I'm, I'm sure maybe maybe you ha- you have this perspective, um, and there's actually been some recent research into this. Um, you know, most people don't think of their sense of smell as particularly important, right? You think of it as kind of this bonus, <laughs> not me. sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love food too but, much. You know, <laughs> you know we, we're visual creatures, right? That's how we navigate the world, and so I think I think for many people. Um, you know, the sense of smell seems a little bit dispensable. I think I read a study, I, I'm not going to get the details right, but they asked a bunch of teenagers whether they'd rather have their sense of smell or their cell phone. And <laughs> most of them picked the cell phone, right? I mean, like, it's, it's totally understandable. But it turns out that, you know, your sense of smell is, is really the first sense that, that evolves. And it's really hardwired into centers of your, of your brain that are involved in emotion and memory. And so having your sense of smell kind of gives you this kind of baseline sense of well-being and kind of centeredness in the world uh, that you don't really appreciate because you're not really that conscious of it. But when you lose your sense of smell, many people feel extremely disjointed. So, you know, the obvious things that are wrong when you lose your sense of smell are that you can't smell smoke, you can't smell gas leaks, um, food becomes not pleasurable, right, because you can't taste it really because there's no flavor, right? Uh, But there's this other layer, which is that, you know, smell is really important for our emotional well-being. And so I think a lot of people, when they lose their sense of smell, are kind of shocked by how off they feel um, as a consequence of of losing their sense of smell. Thankfully for this virus, the vast majority of people get their smell back within a couple weeks, a couple months, uh, which is is really good news. But, you know, for those patients who've lost their sense of smell for a, a longer period of time, that can be a real psychological toll. And, you know, doctors in the clinic are beginning to notice this. And do we know if there's any known permanent damage from having had COVID-19 with regards to smell? Do all the, the cells rejuvenate or is there some kind of trace left behind of having had the virus? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Again, like we're working in the middle of a pandemic. And so I think we're still figuring that out. My intuition, just so you know, if you want me to guess, I would guess that it gets 100% better. That's my guess. Um, the The olfactory epithelium in the back of your nose is really interesting because it contains within it a set of stem cells that constantly rebuild the olfactory epithelium. And that makes sense because whenever we breathe in, we're breathing in all sorts of gunk, right? Toxins, pollen, cigarette smoke, right? And, and that stuff kind of kills the neurons in your epithelium. And so we've evolved a system that, com- that continuously rebuilds itself. And so I think um, for most patients, those stem cells will kick in and cause the, over time, right, and cause the epithelium to be rebuilt and, and maybe as healthy as it was before. That, that's my bet. I don't, I don't think we really know. Okay. And in terms of treatment, what's being done to help sufferers of the loss of smell, the people who've had it for, for a while? Is there uh, a way that it can be kickstarted or revived? Yes. Yeah, so, so the only um, treatment that has been shown to have any clinical efficacy is something called smell training. And it's, it's actually really simple and it's safe and something you can just do at home where you take uh, usually some essential oils and you just smell them repeatedly day after day. And it's thought that that helps 
train your brain to recognize the neural signals coming in from your nose as your nose heals. Um, and so, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a good thing for anyone to try who's had COVID and has lost their sense of smell. Uh, it might help them get their sense of smell back more quickly. And there are plenty of guides on the Internet. If you just type in smell training, that will, that will tell you how to do this. And is that being studied very much right now? Yeah, there are multiple studies testing the efficacy of smell training. And people are thinking about other, other medical treatments for the loss of the sense of smell. People are, are thinking about um, vitamin A and steroids and other kinds of interventions. But the truth is there's very little evidence that, that we have like a, a medicine or a medical-type treatment that will help. Thus far, the best evidence is for, for smell training. But I and others are hoping that with further research, you know, treatments will be made available. And finally, just a last question here. Do You said we haven't seen a virus behave like this before. With regards to smell, have we seen this aspect of loss of smell with another virus in the same way? No, yeah, that, 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 that's what I was referring to. You know, uh, viruses, there are many, many viruses. All of us are infected with them all the time. And typically, you know, when, when we lose our sense of smell, it's really temporary and related to like our nose getting stuffed up. Uh, and so what we're seeing here is really unusual, uh, and it's really sparked interest in the community of olfaction researchers and trying to figure out what's going on. It's so, so interesting. We're learning so much about this, uh, this unfortunate virus, um, but some of it coming out of the, this pandemic even is, um, is very interesting to think about the body differently, too. So I thank you for your perspective this morning. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, you could live almost anywhere in Metro Vancouver and note that homelessness seems to be on the rise. Some help seems to be temporary, a Band-Aid, but my next guest, Attorney General David Eby, says the province is working on long-term solutions to solve homelessness in BC. David Eby is the BC Minister responsible for housing. Thank you for giving us some time this Sunday morning, Mr. Eby. Good morning. Well, one of the things the province has done to curb homelessness is purchase hotels for homeless people to live in. What was the strategy? What was the thinking behind that decision? And how much more of it should we expect to see in Vancouver? Well, there were really two phases. So the first phase was very early in the pandemic when we uh, didn't understand a whole lot about COVID and uh, homeless populations in particular were very vulnerable to rapid spread of COVID and the province was working hard, whether it was temporary agricultural workers or the homeless or people living in long-term care facilities to really identify vulnerable groups and and try to mitigate spread. So uh, the first round of hotel leases and purchases was around the idea of giving people a place to isolate if they were exposed to COVID or uh, recover if they were COVID positive, that kind of thing. Now, the second phase was focused very much on encampments in Vancouver and Victoria. One of the things that we saw was uh, homeless shelters having reduced capacity uh, people who were kind of on the edge in terms of being able to keep their housing, losing their housing and ending up homeless. And uh, we saw large growth in encampments in Vancouver and Victoria, in Strathcona Park in Vancouver and in a number of different parks in uh, in Victoria. And so the hotels were purchased um, in order to decamp those sites, get people off of the streets and out of the parks and, uh, and into some sort of shelter. Um, that resulted in us having a large number of hotels, whether owned or leased. And the leased hotels, the leases are coming up, and the, and a number of the owners want to return the hotels back to tourist use. And for the owned hotels, uh, we're beginning the work of uh, redevelopment of some of them uh, into uh, into mixed-income buildings. And uh, the goal of the whole operation from this stage forward is to make sure that no one that we've housed goes back outside, uh, and also that we're uh, using these resources well for future development. 
Encampments seem to be a major issue in in some cities. Um, It seems like Vancouver has had it relatively under control. What is the concern there for encampments growing? Yeah, I mean, it's a serious concern. We're seeing pressure in homeless populations. We're seeing an increase in homelessness across the province. And, you know, I think our responses have uh, led to some stabilization of the growth of homelessness in Vancouver, for example. But we're seeing growth in homelessness in communities that never really saw homelessness. Uh, A lot of this um, is explained to me by local municipalities um, saying that what they're seeing is an influx of new people into their communities as a result of the pandemic, working remotely, that kind of thing, buying houses that used to be rental houses, the tenants are evicted, and there's just no other housing stock for people to go to. Um, so there's, uh, we're seeing that growth in homeless populations, and, and we're also seeing um, encampments in different parts of the province. Some are long-term encampments. They've been there for a long time. There's one on Lonzo Road in Abbotsford that I'm particularly concerned about, um, but there are also um, uh, smaller encampments in different parts of the province, working with Grand Forks, for example, and they have uh, a small encampment uh, there as well. So um, we, uh, we're kind of taking these encampments one, um, one city at a time uh, and working with the municip- municipality through BC Housing uh, to open up supportive housing to get people inside and open up shelters um, to get people inside as well. So a number of these communities don't have that kind of infrastructure. They, it's bigger city infrastructure that they haven't um, needed before, but they're seeing growth and so they're seeing need for that. Um, it's a fairly significant piece of work for BC Housing um, and uh, and really important for the communities because these encampments can be grounds for um, all kinds of problems, uh, health problems, fire. Um, they can be a base for predators to work out of. Um, so there's lots of reasons for us to close them and get people inside. You mentioned that some municipalities are saying that they are seeing a, a homeless issue where they did not before. And we do hear a lot of people in Vancouver asking, why are there more people that are homeless? Why is it on the rise in Vancouver? Well, Vancouver and Victoria are unique in that um, when people become homeless in other communities, uh, whether in British Columbia or across Canada, uh, they may uh, decide that it would be a good idea to go to Victoria or to Vancouver um, in, in certainly in smaller communities around um, even uh, communities like Terrace uh, or um, uh, in the uh, in the Kootenays. Um, we're seeing uh, people from smaller communities migrate to, to centers like Nelson. Um, and, and so what we're seeing is the, the folks become homeless in a smaller outlying community and then they move into the bigger center. And that's particularly acute in Vancouver and Victoria. So we have about 1,200 units of supportive housing that are opening over the next two years in Vancouver. We have hundreds of new units opening in Victoria and, uh, and to respond to that pressure. But, but what we need to do is move upstream. Um, and part of that means uh, supporting smaller municipalities to open affordable housing, um, including multifamily housing. A lot of these communities don't have any developers even to build that kind of housing. But if we have it, uh, then people won't be moving from a smaller community to these larger communities. And also uh, moving upstream for people who are uh, kids leaving care, um, people leaving hospital that have no fixed address. Uh, we have a homelessness strategy that we're going to be rolling out. There's money in the budget for um, rent supplements so that people can go from hospital or from uh, government care into into uh, their own place, as opposed to if they're capable to do that, uh, as opposed to uh, into the street. And we know that once people are outside, the longer they're outside, the longer they're going to be outside, the more disconnection they have from their supports, the more challenging it is to find a place uh, that a landlord will rent to you if you've been outside for a while. So we're trying to trying to make sure if people do end up homeless, it's for as short a period as possible. And if we can prevent it, we will. 
Okay. There were reports of a lot of women who fled domestic violence during the pandemic as domestic violence was seen to be on the rise during the pandemic. What has the response been for providing housing for those women? Yeah, interesting question. It was um, described by a number of advocates as being a real shadow pandemic. Um, uh, Women uh, being uh, essentially um, uh, restricted to stay at home because of public health measures with abusive partners. Um, and uh, stress levels uh, rising that can lead to increased use of alcohol and other drugs, which can lead to further abuse. And so um, that uh, that cycle of violence, uh, the, really the only way to break it is to give uh, someone who's a uh, uh, survivor of domestic violence the ability to escape and somewhere to go. And so we've been funding um, uh, housing and uh, transition homes for women uh, fleeing violence um, to make sure that they have somewhere to go with kids uh, that's safe. Um, we have a new uh, a new building in Vancouver uh, that's opened. Uh, it's self-contained uh, apartments for women fleeing violence. Uh, we have a, a new building that's under construction in Chilliwack. Uh, so we have a specific fund for this kind of housing, and we're opening um, facilities like this across the province to make sure the women have a place to go. You mentioned some pandemic emergency measures surrounding uh, providing housing and that the province is trying to get out of a crisis response mode. But we know prevention is the best approach to, well, most urban problems. So what would that look like here if if you were to think just philosophically, what do you see as the root cause of homelessness? How would that be tackled? Yeah, it's, it, homelessness is a tricky term because under that umbrella, it, it hides a bunch of different groups that have very different needs. So some people who uh, struggle with homelessness, it's simply that they, you know, they, they just didn't have enough money to make rent one month and they lost their accommodation and, and they needed that uh, that lower rent because they've been in the place for a long time and now they can't find anything that they can afford. So we see often seniors um, falling into this kind of situation. So one of the things we've done is open a rent bank across the province to support people. If they're just short one month, they can borrow the money uh, um, and pay it back over a long period of time so that that one month's crisis doesn't lead to homelessness. There's also a very significant population of people with serious mental health and addiction issues. And so we're opening 20 complex care housing sites across the province. And that's for the people who are really um, visible. In, in the streets, uh, they're in our courts and in our emergency rooms and uh, and in obviously visible distress in the streets. And having uh, space for those folks, uh, they're not quite so sick as to be um, uh, sort of involuntarily detained, uh, but they would benefit from more healthcare support. So the health authorities will be running these sites. Um, and that will also free up space and supportive housing, kind of a little bit a step down for people who don't need quite as many supports, but they might need meals or that kind of thing. Okay. And then uh, there's also a group of people who, um, uh, beyond uh, serious mental health and addiction, are, are just uh, they just need a little bit of support. And so they go into supportive housing. And uh, so between rent supplements, rent bank, uh, complex care and supportive housing, uh, we're trying to put in uh, housing at all these different levels to respond to the needs of the particular person. Okay. Well, thank you for your time this morning, Minister. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.